I'm, I've been upbeat um, pretty much all year. I mean, we think the, the cycle bottom in October of 22, uh, it's expanding. We've got the wind behind us. And I think that wind is going to last um, probably until late 2025. So, you know, our view is this is definitely an up an up cycle. And it's an up cycle, certainly for financial markets right now. And ultimately, the real economy will start to get uh, feel the effect, positive effects of that. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart. 2023, a year nearly everyone expected a recession, has instead seen impressive economic growth and the market's power to all-time highs. How did this happen? Especially as the Federal Reserve kept interest rates above 5% while conducting quantitative tightening. In a word, liquidity. Liquidity steadily rose throughout 2023 and, like an incoming ocean tide, rose all boats. How? Why? Where is it coming from? And if it's such a key driver of asset prices, where is it headed from here? To find out, we're going to have a very important conversation today with Michael Howe, founder and CEO of Cross Border Capital. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the program today, all the way from London. Yeah, hi, Adam. Great to be here. Well, great to have you on here. And and Michael, um, I'm so glad to have you here today because I have been mentioning your name in almost every one of the past interviews I've done on this channel in the past few weeks. Um, it just does seem that uh, maybe, perhaps, we can throw all the other macro indicators uh, out the window and just focus on liquidity, and that's going to tell us where markets are going. Um, I know that this is, you know, a saw that that you've probably been been playing for a long time, and maybe folks are just beginning to really wake up to this. Um, but, uh, you know, I want to get into the, the weeds of this with you, but we're in this quote unquote tightening regime, you know, where most of the world's central banks have been hiking interest rates and conducting quantitative tightening. So most people have been thinking that we've been draining the pond of liquidity when quite actually it may be indeed the opposite. And that might actually explain why the recession never showed up and, and why stocks did so well this year. Um, so I want to get into all of this with you. Um, and obviously where is it headed next? If we can, though, just as a jumping off point, use the the broad question I like to ask everybody uh, at the beginning of these discussions, what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? I think broadly positive, Adam. I mean, I'm, I've been upbeat um, pretty much all year. I mean, we think the, the cycle bottomed in October of 22. Uh, it's expanding. We've got the wind behind us. And I think that wind is going to last um, probably until late 2025. So, you know, our view is this is definitely an up an up cycle. And it's an up cycle, certainly for financial markets right now. And ultimately, the real economy will start to get uh, feel the effect, positive effects of that. May not be for a few months, but I think it's coming. Okay, um, great. I can't wait to dig into this with you for so many reasons. But a big one being, Michael, just just for full disclosure, that is quite different than almost all the guests I've had on this program. I would say I've had folks on a spectrum from the very bearish, like recession next year. 40% decline in, in the S&P um, to uh, folks that kind of think a recession, uh, we deserve to have one. They're just not seeing it in the data yet, but they, they're they keeping a close eye on it. And maybe at some point it might come. You really sort of seem to be saying, nah, we're, we're in a bull cycle here and one that could probably last the next two years. Um, all right. Well, then let's let's just start right in the, the heart of this discussion. Is, is that because of your outlook? for liquidity? Do you see liquidity sort of continuing to rise and to your point, keep a wind at the back of, of the economy and the markets for the next two years? 
I think that that's part of the reason. I mean, I think that there's there's a number of sort of uh, maybe starting points in this in this discussion. I mean, the first thing to say is that you know understanding the flow of money in the world economy is really one of the critical factors that one needs to have for any assessment, whether it's for financial markets or for the world real economy. Uh, you know, I started my career at the U.S. investment bank Salomon Brothers. Salomon Brothers made its name, particularly in the uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, as an institution that understood money flows. Uh, it was the world's biggest fixed income uh, investor or trader, and it needed to understand, uh, you know, sources of liquidity, what central banks were doing, and how that money propagated itself through the system. And I've sort of, if you like, uh, you know, carried that on or maybe uh, made that more of an international dimension. Uh, it was originally sort of thought up by Henry Kaufman, the head of research as a, as a US tool, largely a US tool. But you need to think about this in a global context. So that's pretty much what cross-border capital has been doing. So I think that one thing to say is money flows are very important. I think the other thing to say is that, you know, there's a there's a number of other points that one can add here. I mean, one is that economists have been trying to predict the next Lehman moment uh, every year for the last, uh, what, 12, 13 years now, and it's never come. I don't think there is a Lehman moment out there. I think that that was a, a very much a one-off factor. But there could be financial crises of different, uh, you know, different strengths or diff different meters that that could occur. But what we need to do is to understand the liquidity background to try and get a gauge of those. And that's one of the things that we do. Now, in that context, think about what financial markets are doing. If you pick up an economic textbook, it tells you that the financial sector is there to raise new money for capital investment. Now, I think that's an old story. I think that doesn't happen very much anymore because there isn't a great deal of capex going on in the mature advanced economies. A lot of it clearly is going on in China, but that may be a different a different case. What we spend most of our time doing and what financial markets are doing almost every second, you know, 24 seven is basically trying to refinance existing debt. We have got a huge mountain of debt out there. I mean, eye-watering amounts, $350 trillion plus, according to the International Monetary Fund on last count. And the point about debt is that debt needs to be refinanced. And this is the point that we keep trying to hammer home. If you've got that amount of debt uh, with an average life of that debt of, say, five years, that means you've got to roll $70 trillion of debt every year. And that is a, is a challenge. Now, in order to roll the debt, what you need is balance sheet capacity. And balance sheet capacity, particularly among uh, financial intermediaries, is basically what we call liquidity. That's our definition of liquidity. It's a gross balance sheet concept. Now, contrast that notion of the capacity of capital in the system with the traditional notion that what you need to look at is the cost of capital. Well, if we were in a world where capital spending was dominant, I'd come quietly and say, well, OK, interest rates are important. But since debt financing is the paramount issue, you've got to look at the capacity of capital, in other words, liquidity in the system. Every financial crisis you can think of in the last 20 or 30 years has been a refinancing crisis. And it's required the Federal Reserve or central banks to come back in and add liquidity. And it's as simple as that. And looking forward, nothing has really changed. So in other words, what you've got is a very different world. That has meant, uh, as a corollary, that the polarity of the financial system has changed. So a lot of the old relationships don't kind of work. So if you come back to what economists have been saying and how economists look at the world, we don't use, we never use, would never use macroeconomics to forecast the stock market or asset prices, okay? 
because asset markets are leading indicators. They discount the future. You use the asset market performance to predict the economy, not the other way around. If you try and do it you know, in reverse, you get into a terrible muddle. So basically what we're, we're saying here is you've got to try and understand financial flows within the system. And that's principally what we do. Why is it that the world real economy has been more robust uh, maybe you know this year than many economists predicted? I think there's a number of reasons. One of the main reasons, which may have you know only a, a small amount to do with liquidity, is that fiscal spend in the US is actually so strong. There's a huge fiscal expansion going on, which is lifting the US economy. Liquidity has played a role because it's lifted asset markets and there's been a positive wealth effect that's uh, you know embraced the consumer. And you might argue as well that China has been uh, putting a lot of money back into its uh, economy in the last, certainly the last six months, which is starting to lift activity there. So I think there are a number of factors that are liquidity related, but I think a lot of the reason uh, for a strong world economy uh, in many ways comes back to this very, very generous uh, US fiscal, fiscal stance. Okay. Um, so if I heard you right, it's sort of like, what used to be the tail that the dog wagged is now uh, the tail wags the dog here, which is they used to say, look, you know, the economy and how it operates will dictate sort of what the stock markets do. You're, you're now saying it's really the assets side of things that will drive the economy, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's that's very fair. Absolutely. But I would say in actual fact that it's been a, a misguided view to say that uh, you use the economy to forecast the stock market. I understand that a lot of economists do that, but I just think that's simply wrong. Okay. So you're basically telling people, look, you know, if you're following that old model, you might need to consider replacing it. Um, when you talk about balance sheet capacity, um, I, I assume you mean, you know, the ability of balance sheets to take on more debt as, as we're Correct. going through this continued, continuous debt refinancing wave. Correct. Do you mean... Corporate balance sheets, or do you mean central bank balance sheets? Well, I'm actually thinking of the balance sheet of the financial sector of credit providers, and that uh, those balance sheets of banks, shadow banks, etc., are largely governed uh, by what the central banks do. Not not exclusively, but the central banks play a big role. And the two things really to look at, uh, as we've tried to articulate in our writings. Number one is the size of the central bank balance sheet. That's important, although I, I'm going to correct myself here and say, actually, what you really want to look at, because this is going to be important when analysing the Fed, is not simply the size of the balance sheet, but actually, more importantly, the liquidity generating parts of the balance sheet, which is a subtle but important twist. And the second thing to look at is the extent to which that liquidity can be leveraged in the system, okay? And that can come through what's called collateral, which is, if you like, the backing for loans. But one of the things you need to look at as well is the multiplier that that liquidity has in terms of broader uh, the broader aggregate picture for global liquidity. And that, in many ways, is related to the degree of volatility in the bond markets. And this is a very wonkish point. I don't want to labor it too much. But effectively, what you would say is that since we've got central banks that are generally expanding their balance sheets now, let me say that again, expanding their balance sheets, because everyone thinks they're contracting, but yep. they're starting yep. to expand their balance sheets. And you've got as well a multiplier uh, on that, that balance sheet expansion, which is starting to expand as well. You've got this double whammy which is coming in, which is forcing global liquidity higher. And that is one of the reasons that stock markets have been strong this year, uh, you know, generally around the world, but particularly in the US. What's more, if you drill down 
into asset price performance. And I can, you know, tick a few boxes here and say, look, consider, for example, uh, the fact the S&P is up. Consider the fact that it's being led by technology stocks. Consider the fact that corporate uh, corporate debt has been a pretty decent performer this year. Um, consider the fact that basically, certainly in the first half year, bond duration was a bad idea and the commodity markets have been uh, you know, very lackluster through this year. All those features are features of the early part of the liquidity cycle. So everything that you're seeing in the markets, the markets are screaming at us that this is a liquidity cycle inflection that is turning up. There's nothing unusual about this cycle at all. Nothing unusual about this cycle at all. Okay, so you're not you're not surprised at all about what's going on here. I really want to walk have you walk people through what you see. A couple quick questions just to get out of my head to make sure that I can follow you from here. Um, one is you said, and people used to think that interest rates really mattered, but they really don't that much. And and help me understand that um, in a world where uh, you're you're expecting balance sheets to basically be able to take on more debt, but the debt is a lot more expensive now than it was two years ago. Well, I'll, I'll give you two examples. I'm not saying that interest rates are completely unimportant, but I'm saying that they're, they're much diminished in their importance. If you consider a home mortgage, okay, you're a, a mortgagee, you've got a, a home mortgage coming up for renewal, you've got to roll that mortgage. And you know maybe it's coming up to its term of 20 years, but you want to roll it on for another five or 10 years. What's critical for you as a mortgagee is whether you can get the roll on that debt, not so much what the interest rate is. If you can't get the roll, you're homeless, right? Yeah. And the same with corporations. If they can't get the roll on their debt, they default. So the roll is particularly important. So in a world there's lots of debt refinancing required, you need, the, you need that roll. It's more important than the interest rate that you pay. Now, Clearly, I'll come quietly and say, well, if you're charging 20, 30 percent interest, that clearly is a, a bogey to jump as well. But the plain fact is that the current levels of interest rates, it's the role that's more important than the level of rates. And sorry, just to be clear, because it's 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 an existential choice. It's I pay more for the debt or I die. So I'll do everything I can to pay more for the debt. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That That's that's the point. You you don't want to be homeless. It focuses the mind. But this is just an example, um, you know, to try and extrapolate the. The other point to make is that, you know, people will say, well, okay, what we're doing in terms of valuing stocks or valuing investments is to use a discount factor, which is an interest rate. OK, well, OK, I, I understand the math of that. That's that's clear. The point is that if you look at the long term track record, there is not a close relationship between interest rates and the value of the stock market or more particularly, the valuation of the stock market. And I challenge anyone that disagrees to go back and look at the wonderful data set that Robert Schiller has on his website, where he looks at, uh, going back to, I think it's 1870 or whatever in US data, uh, data on the price earnings multiple of Wall Street and interest rates. Uh, is there a co correlation? It's very, very weak. Now, why is that? The reason I would argue is there are not that many people, either historically or now, who are doing the arbitrage between bonds and stocks okay now let me give you two examples first of all let's think of the of the british british example pension funds where pension funds in the uk are more mature than in the us 10 years ago more than 50 percent of pension fund assets were in stocks okay and the rest were predominantly in fixed income what you've got now is 14 percent in stocks and the vast amount in fixed income securities 
So in other words, what I'm saying is the ability to do the arbitrage is not there between stocks and bonds. It's much diminished. OK, the second thing is think of the US with uh, 401k plans. If I'm correct, um, um, using some of the data that comes from the very good data that comes from Mike Green, is that something like 85 percent of, of 401k plans are now target life funds, OK, which are not doing an asset allocation. Hmm. And. This is basically saying there's there's not an arbitrage between stocks and bonds. Therefore, what works, what works is the inflation rate. Look at the inflation rate, the underlying inflation rate as your discount factor. And the stock market is very, very closely related inversely to inflation. Now, what have you had this year? You've had three things principally going on, certainly in the first half year. You've had bond yields going up, right? That should mm -hmm. be negative for stocks. But you've also countering that had global liquidity rising and U.S. liquidity rising and inflation falling sharply. It's the latter two factors that have driven the stock market. The fact that inflation has come down and the fact that global liquidity has gone up. That's what markets are about. Risk assets depend on low inflation and lots of liquidity. All right. And sorry, just to interject, to make sure I heard you right. Um, sounds like you said, because I, I started my career in investment banking on Wall Street. I remember doing tons of discount rates, weighted average cost of capital. Um, and as your 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 discount rate increases, your valuation decreases, right? Your NPV decreases. You're saying, and, and a big part of creating the the discount rate in the traditional models is you start with the risk free rate, which basically you're pulling from the U.S. ten year, you know, as as, as a benchmark for that. Um, you're saying instead of looking at at interest rates for the the discount rate, we should be looking at the inflation rate. So right. the, we've had disinflation and pretty pretty extreme disinflation, you know, from nine percent to three percent over the past year. Um, so as that has gone down, if you use that as the discount rate, then your NPV should be going up pretty dramatically, which does support what the markets have done. You're nodding as I'm right. saying this, so I'm following you correctly. Correct, absolutely, hundred percent correct. That that that's right. In other words, what we're really debating is what is the appropriate discount factor, and it certainly isn't the ten-year bond. And to suggest that that's a risk-free instrument after what's happened in the last uh, two years is, I think, fanciful. Hmm. Okay, um, that's super interesting. Um, let me let me just ask you this last thing on interest rates. And I know you've got some charts we want to get to, and I'm I'm, I'm going to let you just run as much as you want to in explaining this to everybody. But let me let me share one image with you here, um, which uh, it's a chart of the Fed funds rate. Um, this particular one's been put together by uh, David Rosenberg, but you know, you can pull this from almost anywhere. Um, and it shows that for the past, you know, 30 years, 40 years, with the major recessions we've had, they've pretty much all been preceded by a pretty substantial rise in interest rates. Mm -hmm. You know, we hang out for a little bit and then uh, we start going into um, recession. And largely that's, you know, the, the, the central banks are scrambling to, to start cutting rates there. Um, and usually there's a pretty big market downdraft associated with each of those recessions there. So for, I think I understand the logic that you're saying of, of why you think that there's actually a bull cycle ahead from here, but it would kind of mean that things are different this time. Um, explain either how I'm reading this chart wrong or why it is different this time. Well, I think the, the there's a number of factors. I mean, one is that this is simply one indicator. Yep. Uh, it isn't necessarily... Uh, what's driving recessions. I mean, I, I could equally show you oil prices on that chart, and there's been a spike in oil prices ahead of every recession. 
Um, there's what you see now is collapsing oil prices. So that would actually suggest we're going to see uh, a, a strong economy next year, if that's correct. So I think it depends on the indicator you look at. I'm not saying that interest rates are, uh, are not important. Uh, all I'm saying is that they're not the critical factor uh, that they were. And the longer you go back in time, the more important interest rates were because they're actually affecting capital spending decisions. But given the fact that uh, you've got uh, not that great amount of capital spending going on in the advanced economies now because they're mature economies with lots of excess capacity. Um, secondly, you've got debt where the maturity wall is probably at least two to three years out. And so corporations don't need to come to the market to raise to raise money right now. Uh, they probably got their funding. OK, I, you know, I would venture that interest rates are not having the impact that they once did. So it's really as straightforward as that. So I would be extremely surprised if you've got a recession in the US. You may get a slowdown. But, you know, as I recall this, this looks to me very much like this sort of period in the early 90s in the US where you've got what were called rolling recessions in different sectors. The entire economy never fell into uh, into the ditch, so to speak. Uh, and that, interestingly, was in the wake of the savings and loan crisis. And you might say this one is in the wake of the regional banking crisis. So it's not dissimilar. OK, um... And I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct correct this statement. But um, we've had a lot of people on this channel, and, and just being honest, I've I've, I've parroted this a lot, um, who have been concerned about the lag effect from the you know sort of extreme rapidity by which the central banks uh, raised interest rates and the cost of debt has gone up. Um, and I understand what you've said, where hey, they just don't matter as much as they used to in terms of their impact on the economy and financial assets. But there's been you know this. There's been a lot of people saying, look, the, the lag effect, uh, it's still going to matter. And maybe it's getting delayed for a whole bunch of reasons, including rising liquidity. I kind of get the vibe from you that you don't think it's going to really um, matter that much. Like it, it may express itself in these kind of rolling recessions you're talking about, but you're, you're not expecting if, 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 if we do stay higher for longer for a while, you, you don't really expect kind of like a wheels come off the economy uh, result because of the lag effect not really no I, I think that you know we we should i mean if you look at the lags i mean there, there may be various reasons why lags are extended but we're not really seeing i don't think any great evidence of recession coming i mean there, there's clearly been a cyclical slowing I'm, i'd be incorrect to suggest there hasn't but i think equally you can you can uh, you can cite examples of US activity picking up. I mean, it was only uh, only a week or so ago that I think the chairman of, uh, of the LA Port Authority was actually citing uh, increasing volumes. And I think, that, I mean, I, I'm not going to misquote him, but I think he was saying that, uh, you know, volumes are up 20% on a year ago. Now, that would suggest that there's some inflection going on. Actually, I mean, we can see that in other port authorities. Look at what's happening in Singapore as well in China. And that may be part of this sort of uh, ramping up of the Chinese economy again. So I think a lot of these things are consistent. I'm not saying there won't be a slowdown. What I'm saying is I don't think there's going to be a deep recession. Uh, evidence something else, which is looking at the numbers that the, the Federal Reserve puts, or the, the once the New York Fed, I think it may be now the Dallas Fed, they've taken the, the data over, um, which is basically looking at weekly US activity rates. They produce an index. Uh, for the last two or three weeks, that's been accelerating again. So, you know, it strikes me that the evidence is very mixed, but I don't think you're getting a recession. You may be getting a slower economy for sure, but, you know, from all accounts, the Federal Reserve is now turning around and arguably it wants to try and uh, boost uh, the economy through next year by rate cuts. 
Okay, so and I'm asking a lot of these questions just to differentiate your position from from a lot of the other folks we've had on here. So I kind of take from you saying, yeah, the plane might lose a little bit of altitude still from here, but I don't think you expect a landing. Like it's basically, you know, the, the, this, these net positive capital flows and whatnot will, will eventually kick in and, and win on, uh, on on the net basis, and, and the plane will actually start gaining altitude that, again. Over that time. is my view. Okay. Great to hear that. So last question on this, and then I'm, I'm going to let you get to whatever chart you have to sort of explain how you track liquidity, where you see it right now, where you see it going, which is when you talk about balance sheet capacity, um, is there a limit to that or a point at which you get diminishing returns? Um, can can the balance sheets of the banking and non-banking system with the help of the central banks or whatnot, can they do this infinitely? Or, or is there a point at which you literally just get debt saturation or exhaustion, or they just can't keep manufacturing short-term prosperity by taking on more debt? Well, I think that's an extremely good point. Uh, I don't fully know the answer to that. Uh, what I would say is unquestionably politicians uh, and policymakers are kicking the can down the road because that's the only viable solution that we can think of in the near term. And, and they will uh, do that all the time. That That is they, they will do playbook, that. you know, bullet number one. <laughs> But, you know, you look at and I, I can show you a, a chart a little bit later that if you look at the at the estimates that are put out by uh, a combination of the Congressional Budget Office, which is a, obviously a bipartisan body uh, and the International Monetary Fund on U.S. debt to GDP ratios, what you're seeing is that on their uh, joint numbers, 250 uh, percent debt GDP ratio is tested uh, around 2050. Now, given the fact that we're just above 100% or so now, this is public debt, uh, that's a way to go. Now, the last economy, the last major economy that got into that, I mean, uh, let's say Western economy, because Japan's clearly been there, but right. the last Western economy you've seen in history that got to those levels was Britain uh, in the interwar and subsequent post-war periods. And that high degree of public debt to GDP was not a great background for the British economy. Uh, there were a whole lot of troubles that emerged. And I think the thing that concerns me is that le that level of public debt to GDP will have a lot of uh, untoward effects on the underlying level of the US economy. And I think, you know, equally, if you come back to this whole question about uh, the integrity of the regional banks in the US, the regional banks are integral to the performance, the long run performance, the long run productivity performance of the American economy. And the longer that you screw down the regional banks uh, with an inverted yield curve, the more you're going to damage the long term growth trend of the US economy. It's not the cycle here that is the important thing. It's the long term trend. I'm a little bit more optimistic about the cycle because I think fiscal policy is, if you like, lifting the economy upwards uh, at the moment. But the long term trend, the government sector can't do much about apart from getting out of the way, but they can't do. It's all about the private sector and the private sector depends particularly on regional banks in the US for lending. If you start to hammer down those regional banks for any longer, uh, it's going to damage the long term productivity performance of the US economy, which is why I believe that the Federal Reserve is very well advised. And I think they're going to do that. Try and steepen the yield curve in 2024. That's why they need to get rates down. OK, um... That's really interesting. And again, I, I don't want to I don't want to mischaracterize you here, but what I kind of hear you saying is like, I'm going to make you a doctor for a second. Uh, you feel like you can get the patient um, out of the hospital bed uh, and walking around again, um, you know, with some some uh, I don't know adrenaline defibrillators, whatever. Um, you, you can get them back into a, a decent state of health in a short period of time. 
but you're still worried about their underlying chronic condition and it's still maybe terminal, right? Is, is that a decent analogy? Yeah, I think that's right. I would not go as far as say if it's terminal for the U.S. economy. I think as we sort of characterize it more loosely is that, uh, you know, the the U.S. may be the cleanest shirt in the laundry, but, yep. you know, it's in the laundry. Uh, a lot of others are in much worse shape than America. But nonetheless, there is an issue that needs to be faced. And that is that these these debt levels are not healthy. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. And I, I, I again, don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, I've seen the uh, the chart that you're talking about, um, the CBO chart, where you just see the, the debt kind of going exponential from here in their projections. And those are government projections, right? And yeah. um, and one of the worries that I have from it is just government doesn't have a great track record of projecting. In other words, it, it, it tends to be more optimistic than what usually plays out. So would you be taking the right. under on that 2050 bet? Oh, I th absolutely. I think that it's going to be it potentially is worse than that. Um, but I think that, you know, the thing that you've got to start thinking about in, in, in the same thought pattern is that debt demands liquidity and liquidity, if you like, facilitates more debt. So there's a sort of a, a, a vicious spiral uh, between these two factors. And if you've got a rising debt to GDP ratio, you've also got a rising liquidity to GDP ratio. Now, that's what you know, the, the, the other issue that we're talking about here is that debt may be damaging the integrity of the American economy, but liquidity is having a wholesale effect on financial markets, and it requires a major change in asset allocation. And I would venture, you know, why should you be holding government bonds or any form of bonds in the medium term if you're facing a serious monetary inflation? What you've got to start thinking about is monetary inflation hedges, and that's really the, the, what's at, at the heart of this. Okay, monetary inflation hedges are at the heart of this. Okay, so I'm writing that down to revisit with you at the end of this discussion, which is right. once we fully understand liquidity, what do you do about it? That sounds like probably step number one. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay, all right. Well, look, I've asked most of my questions to sort of set the stage here. Um, I know you've got some charts. Um, we can go any direction you like, but I guess one question just might be sort of like, where is liquidity right now? H how do you measure it? Do you have some charts that sort of show where we are? Okay. How do you calculate it? Like what inputs go into it? I've seen different charts sort of measuring inflation. We don't seem to have, you know, a standard inflation chart. I kind of wish we did, given how important it is. I mean, I, I think like the Wall Street Journal should probably just have that chart on the front page every day, just like the S&P. Yeah. I think absolutely good point. Very good point. Let me let me share some slides and then I'll I will try and answer these questions directly. So this chart, hopefully that you can see in front of you is. Uh, if you like, the, 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 the mainspring of our work, which is looking at the global liquidity index or the global liquidity cycle. And what this chart is basically illustrating is in black, the flow of uh, money through world financial markets. Now, what we think about is uh, in terms of liquidity is not these monetary aggregates like M1 or M2 or whatever. I mean, I've uh, you know said many times before, they're sort of very outdated measures that are really uh, gauging uh, the deposit liabilities of US high street banks. Uh, they're not really meaningful in a world where you've got global money, global liquidity, uh, and you've got shadow banks and other forms of uh, borrowing apart from uh, uh, deposits uh, or other forms of funding apart from deposits. You need to make a, a much, much wider or broader assessment of what, uh, of what liquidity is. And this is money that is flowing through world financial markets. And the black line is an index. It ranges between zero and 100. Um, the dotted line you see on top of that is a sine wave. 
um, based on a Fourier analysis, for those of you that are mathematical, that we basically put over the top uh, in year 2000, so approximately 25 years ago. So what we were doing then was using the data set from 1970 to 2000 to fit that sine wave to the black line. And we've run it on consistently without uh, you know, alteration uh, thereafter. So what you see is what you get. And what it traces out are average 65 month cycles. And that seems to be the repeating cycle uh, of global liquidity. Why that is, I, I don't know for sure. Uh, I've got various theories as to why you get there, but uh, I, none of them are particularly, you know, uh, outstanding, if you like, or, or uh, 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 the true explanation. So it's a combination of things. But what you can see, particularly if you look recently, is the global liquidity cycle uh, hit a low point about 2018, 2019, rocketed upwards through the COVID crisis, as you saw central banks uh, injecting lots and lots and lots of liquidity. Uh, it then started to crash as central banks reversed course, and it hit a low point around October of 2023, and it's picked up thereafter. Now, there is no question, uh, and I'd be incorrect to say this, that liquidity is currently low. It's not high, but it is expanding and it will likely not certainly but likely trace out that path as uh, articulated by the dotted line there and it will peak around uh, late 2025 if we're correct now to answer your question about what goes into that and maybe some of the ingredients i'm going to flick back in this slide deck to try and show an earlier chart uh, which hopefully will illustrate what i mean by uh, by this so this is the pool of global liquidity as we define it, uh, shown on this chart. Uh, it basically illustrates that global liquidity is a, a pool of $170 trillion or thereabouts. It is a measure of the capacity of capital, um, not the cost of capital. And it really matters, as we say, when debt needs to be rolled over. Uh, and for the record, it's about one and three quarter times the size of world GDP. Now, what is it we're actually doing here? This slide is, is defining what we mean by liquidity. Uh, it, it, the, the text is probably uh, self-evident, but broadly, in summary, we're, we're calibrating central bank interventions into markets, bank and shadow bank credit advances, the cash flow of corporations, um, collateral-based wholesale and repo market activity, which is you know, a fairly wonkish idea, but I mean that's it's very important in the modern financial economy, and net cross-border flows. And essentially, the liquidity measure we look at is really a wholesale measure uh, that, as I say at the bottom, more or less uh, starts where conventional definitions of money end. So this is the important thing that we that we tend to monitor. That's the liquidity cycle again in, if you like, microcosm since 19, uh, 1990. And what it is illustrating is that the peaks of the liquidity cycle coincide, as the annotations suggest, with asset price booms. And the low points tend to see banking crises. So what you've got is uh, the low point uh, in the last two dips uh, were the U.S. repo market tensions in uh, the summer of 1919, uh, sorry, 2019, and the U.S. regional banking uh, problems that occurred uh, around the spring of this year. And that's quite consistent with what you would typically find during low points in the cycle. Now. If we move on somewhat, actually, sir, gonna... sir, can you go back to that for one second? 
I will. Yep. Yeah. Um, there's two things I want to note about this. Um, one is obviously this maps really well to what we've seen in asset prices over the past couple of years, right? Which is as liquidity started declining, that basically was was 2022, right? That's why we had such a bad year in the markets and, and in um, uh, stock markets and bond markets. I guess even if we go before then, you see the huge rise in liquidity, you know, following the pandemic and all the responses. And that's what brought asset prices up to all time highs. Um, uh, and then, you know, the bottom there, U.S. regional bank crisis there, that that is, I'm, I'm guessing that bottomed around October. You tell me if that's wrong. The regional well, the, banks. The, yeah, the cycle yeah. actually bottomed in October, but the banking crisis was uh, February, March. Yeah, because it took a little time for the shockwave yeah. to, to head on over there, right? Um, and, and now it's going up. And, and based on your previous chart of the sine wave, the sine wave, if this follows the sine wave, you know, it goes back up pretty substantially from here for the next year and a half, two years. That's why you think Mark, uh, you know, financial assets are going to run into 2025. I totally get that. Uh, so that's point number one, which is the, the at least in, in our recent living history, this chart is very explanative. Um, mm -hmm. Secondly, when you show that we have sort of banking crises uh, at the bottoms of these things, this may also go to your point of, you know, interest rates maybe don't matter as much as liquidity. Where you know folks have been talking about, uh, well, we you know all the discussion when the Fed started raising interest rates was at what rate does the economy break, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody was worried that the central banks were going to quote unquote break something by having higher interest rates. Your chart seems to show maybe there's some correlation between liquidity and, and rates, but really what matters here is it's it's a decline in liquidity that breaks things. And right. that's what we should, if we're worried about things breaking, we should then be looking maybe much more at liquidity than interest rates. Correct. That's what we've yeah. been arguing for a long, long time. Yeah. But it was also okay. the lessons that, you know, I learned when I was at Salomon Brothers that it's liquidity that really matters. Okay. I, ju I just wanted to, to hammer on that because your chart is a good visualization of the points that you were making earlier on. And, you know, as I say, don't, don't take my word for it. Go and read the writings of Henry Kaufman, who was the doyen of this whole Fun, uh, flow of funds analysis, particularly in the US economy. I mean, Henry has written extensively and with great authority about the risks of financial crisis in the American economy. I mean, his books, I'm sure, are still very much in print. They're definitely worth reading. All right, great, great, great point. And uh, I, I interrupted you, so I'll let you go on here. Um, but, but one question I do want to ask you after we go through all this is, uh, why are more people not beating this drum? Michael, I mean, you make it sound so self-evident and you've got a lot of great supporting visuals here. Why are why does liquidity come up so infrequently in these macro discussions? Well, I think that that's that's not I mean, I think there are two reasons or two, two things to say. I mean, one is that there are people out there who look at liquidity. I mean, we in, in many cases, certainly wearing my Salomon Brothers hat, probably pioneered it, um, you know, several decades ago. Uh, but there are other people that find liquidity important. I think you can find uh, people, for example, I mean, dangerous talk here, but in the crypto space who certainly believe that liquidity is the important factor to watch. This may be a new generation of investors, but they seem to have uh, cottoned on to the fact that it's very important. Uh, but then if you come back to teaching 
And you know, this is the whole question about why people have the views they do is the economics or traditional e economics is not it doesn't teach this type of stuff it teaches traditional textbook stuff where what really matters in the uh in the markets is the rate of interest um uh, you know I'm, I'm sure as you would attest i mean your experience is that people look at interest rates i i understand all that but it isn't necessarily the most important thing yeah i'm just shocked be, and, and yeah, i mean i'm not super shocked that maybe the mainstream financial media you know is sort of stuck in the past but you know, I talk to a lot of people that are in the, whatever you want to call the space, the alternative financial media space, FinTwit, whatever, where I, I like to think people are a little bit more open-minded and data-driven. And yeah, we'll talk about liquidity from time to time, but but very few make it the heart of their case. And very few will pull up a visual and say, this is how I'm measuring it. And this is where we are. I, I'm just surprised because hearing you talk here, it just sort of sounds like, hey, this should be the thing you start with and end with and, and talk a lot about in the middle. And, and I just, I interview a lot of people, you know, per week. The points you raise here are are, are raised relatively infrequently, I'm just going to say. So it just surprises me. But then I think if you go back and looked, if you went back to the 19, late 60s, 1970s, and you talked about what's driving inflation, uh, and suddenly Milton Friedman appears and says it's all about money. There was a period of 10, 15, 20 years where money was the only thing that then became important in understanding inflation. But that derailed traditional economic analysis. But now, since then, economic analysis has fought its way back uh, you know, into the curriculum. But you could see that there are fashions, and I'm not saying that liquidity is going to remain in fashion forever, but it's certainly important right now. I mean, th I always think you've got to, you've got to pay attention to what liquidity is saying. Sure. Uh, well, look, I, I, I've interrupted you. Know, I'll let you going, but I, I let you go. Uh, but I, I feel like I should name this this video when we release it something like "It's all about liquidity, stupid" or something like that because <laughs> it just seems so so paramount from from what you're saying here. But anyways, I'll, I'll let you continue. So what I was go I'm I'm going to go on to a, a slide just uh, in a second, which hopefully explains what you were uh, you were. Um, um, doing with your narrative earlier this is looking at the global liquidity cycle in uh this is the puritans 2000 again uh with uh in orange with returns on all assets overlaid on top and liquidity extrapolated out to 20 the end of 2025 now there are two things i'll say about that first the definition of all wealth includes all residential real estate worldwide uh which i get data from the bis database uh, Bank for International Settlements, that is. I look at all bond bond uh, market investment products, all equities worldwide, uh, all liquid asset products, uh, in other words, money market funds or whatever, precious metals, uh, cryptocurrencies, all added together into a total portfolio, which comes to about 500, in excess of 500 trillion. And that basically is shown as the black line in terms of its average uh average annual increases. The orange line is global liquidity. Now, in a sense, it's a fairly um, uh, unfair chart, because if I ran it back uh, from 1970 onwards, you would find a very good correlation between uh, global liquidity and all wealth, uh, as reported here, but it wouldn't quite as be as tight as what we see here. And actually, the correlation has tightened as the years have advanced. So in other words, for the last 10 years, that correlation has been remarkably tight, like we've never seen before. Uh, but there we are. And the extrapolation in the future has a curious dog leg in it, 
um, where it looks like it's going down uh, sort of sharply, that's really a base effect. That's mathematical or arithmetic. Uh, it's not because liquidity is set to fall. It's because the growth rate, which we show here, is dipping back because it was a surge a year ago. So don't read anything into that. Think about the underlying trend, which is saying that liquidity is likely expanding at about 8 to 10%. So that's the sort of returns that you could expect. So that answers, hopefully, the question about, um, you know, the correlation of liquidity and asset classes. There is a very tight correlation. Now, if I go back to the chart I was I was going to uh, try and explain, this is a heat map of what central banks are doing. There are about 80 central banks on that chart. Uh, there is no, um, you know, the, there's nothing about the size or importance. This is just a, a collective of all central banks. So the, the Federal Reserve has, you know, exactly the same uh, square as the, the, or size square as the Bank of Mauritius, for example. Okay, so um, it's equal so, weighted. Yeah, it's, it's equal weighted, but it gives an impression of the numbers of central banks that are easing or tightening. Green is green for go or easing, and red is red for stop or tightening. And as the hues change, uh, as we move through the chart from red towards orange, towards yellow, towards green, uh, there is more easing coming on. So you can see maximum tightness was about the summer of 2022. And we're basically progressively moving towards that uh, more benign period. And that's pretty much what we, you know, is, is how we read things going forward. Now, the other thing to say is while I'm on this chart, this is what is happening in the American economy or with the Federal Reserve. And, you know, this is how we understand what the Fed is doing. We're looking at the balance sheet. Anyone can do this. OK, uh, we devised this aggregate, which we called Fed liquidity. That came from my you know, days at Salomon Brothers, but looking at the Fed. But effectively, what the orange line is, is measuring Fed liquidity. Um, Fed liquidity is basically the liquidity injections that Fed actions uh, mean for the money markets, how much money the Federal Reserve through its interactions uh, effectively get put into the money markets. And that's orange. The red line is the overall size of the balance sheet. Now, there's absolutely no question that the balance sheet has fallen in the last 12 months. Uh, there is absolutely no question that the Federal Reserve has engaged what it calls QT by allowing treasuries to roll off the balance sheet. That is unequivocal. But the fact is, uh, besides that, underneath that, uh, the amount of liquidity uh, they've injected into money markets has risen by 17% since the beginning of the year, uh, which is something like about five to 600 billion US dollars. And you can see the two points I mark on the graph, first of all, for the British guilt crisis in September, which I think was a wake up call for policymakers everywhere, of how bad things had got uh, or could get. And the US regional banking crisis and Credit Suisse first Boston failure uh, in March, February, March of 2023, when there was a noticeable pickup in liquidity. Liquidity conditions have expanded thereafter. If we are correct in assessing that the latest Fed, the FOMC meeting is signaling that rates will be cut uh, through next year, I would venture, number one, that it would be unlikely that they would continue their QT policy at the same rate or even at all, which means there's more liquidity still going into the market. And secondly, the reverse repo tranche or program held at the, on the Federal Reserve balance sheet, which is technically a withdrawal of liquidity from the markets, will be run down aggressively as money market funds basically switch from the Fed's uh, overnight account into treasury bills, which are basically term 
uh, you know, term instruments, not overnight, uh, and they will pay a more attractive interest rate. Uh, than overnight. So I think that that will happen. And those are liquidity boosts. And so you're going to see more liquidity going into the system. But the fact is, whichever way you cut this, Fed liquidity has gone up, uh, even though headline says they've done QE, QT. But what's okay, important is liquidity. Th that's just such an important point to underline, because I think the vast majority of people that follow Wall Street and the markets are thinking that liquidity has been going down in the U.S. at least, based upon you know the Fed's "quote unquote" tightening regime, but um, but it's not you know for for your data here. And I'm sorry, you might have missed this, but if you could just reiterate it, what exactly is the Fed doing that is increasing li liquidity here since the beginning of 2023? I'm I'm, I'm guessing the BTFP helped. You know, we saw that huge spike there uh, right around the, the the banking crisis. What else have they been doing? Well, it's been factors like I mean whether one attributes that directly to the Federal Reserve or whether one says it's Janet Yellen, uh, you know, operating mm -hmm. via the Treasury General account. I mean, I think those are sort of moot points. But at the end of the day, you know, if if the if the argument, which is some people put this argument that actually it's not the Fed, it's the Treasury who's doing this. But, you know, that opens up a whole can of worms because the Federal Reserve is supposedly independent. So uh, the Treasury shouldn't be affecting things in that way. But the fact is that the Federal Reserve oversees the amount of liquidity that goes into money markets. That's its job. And therefore, it uh, it needs to you know control its liquidity injections. It could be it's one of the factors that's been very important, uh, as you say, has been the bank term funding program. Another factor has been the rundown of the of the reverse repo account on the Fed's balance sheet, which was basically money that was. Uh, that was, if you like, siloed on the Fed, Fed balance sheet, paying interest to the money market funds when there was an absence of treasury bills in the system. Now treasury bills are coming through in spades. What you're seeing is a significant drawdown of that of that account. Um, and you've also got the treasury general account, which has fluctuated. Admittedly, it did go down, but it's now come up again to about 700 billion. But the, these are sort of, uh, you know, uh, side factors. But generally, the balance sheet or the liquidity inducing part has gone up. The other thing which has helped as well is the Federal Reserve is making losses on its bond portfolio because it's basically receiving less interest than it's paying out. And as it pays out more than it receives, that's actually liquidity that's going into the markets. Mm. OK, super interesting there. OK, great. That's really helpful. It just sort of helps us understand the individual components that are driving that increase there. And what this chart here is doing is just like taking a reference cycle, which is looking at what the Federal Reserve did in the 97 to 2003 period using our own uh, in-house liquidity index of the Federal Reserve, which is the black dotted line. So that's the reference cycle uh, beginning in um, 1997, ending in 2003. And we've overlaid on top the current cycle of where the Federal Reserve has been operating since 2019. And you can see it's pretty much uh, 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 you know, the same path, except for the last four or five months where the Fed has gone off track. And I think it needs to catch up. And I think that's what uh, Jay Powell and co uh, pretty much indicated at the last FOMC. They need to get on with the job. They need to get rates down. They need to get the yield curve steeper and they need to get more liquidity pushed into the economy. And I think this is where the cycle is. They, they've been, you know, if you look at the inflation data on the way that we look at it, at least, I think they've been remarkably successful. And arguably, uh, they've done a better job than Volcker did in the early 1970s. 
And I, I rest that statement on the fact that, you know, if you look at the persistence of inflation through the pricing structure, it's actually disappeared at a much faster rate this cycle than it did um, in the early 1980s uh, under Volcker. So I think they've done a very good job in terms of getting inflation down. I don't think there is a serious uh, long term inflation problem in the American or any other economy worldwide. Can I ask a question related to that? Um, could that be uh, in perhaps kudos to Powell and the team to kind of manage the whole thing. But could could that be the difference between the 70s is, is we had a, a, a real supply shock this time, right? Mm -hmm. Where we had supply chains that just froze up, you know, for a period of time where you couldn't get product that pushed prices high because of the scarcity. But that has largely been mended now. And Absolutely. so a huge part of the inflationary issue wasn't wasn't even monetary. I mean, it, it was once the central banks and the the, the um, fiscal side got involved, but it wasn't it wasn't one hundred percent of the inflation issue, and a good chunk of it was due to these supply issues that are now gone. Exactly correct. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And if you contrast, if you want a sort of interesting thought exercise, compare what America or Europe did with what China did, and if you look at what happened through the COVID crisis, that was a negative supply shock. What America and Europe did was to boost demand. So if you look at the implications of that through simple supply demand analysis, prices must go up, which they did. Okay. If you look at what China did, what China did through that supply shock is actually tightened policy for other reasons, because the yuan currency was under great pressure. And what you'd have expected there was actually an output adjustment downwards. So the economy should have slowed markedly with some deflation. And that's exactly what you've had been between the two continents. Interesting. Not not for this discussion, but I'd love to kind of analyze for you, you know, if we could go back in time, uh, what, if anything, you would have done differently in that situation. But but that's pulling us off of, of liquidity. So let's let you finish your slides. Yeah. So anyway, this is what the Fed's got to do. And I'm going to uh, this, by the way, is a chart which is saying which central banks or are central banks easing. This is just a metric which shows the amount of liquidity that central banks are issuing in their markets in orange. Uh, this is weighted by size. And the dotted black line is the percentage of central banks that are now running easier policies. So one third of central banks worldwide now, so that's counting everything of this sort of 1890 uh, central bank sample that we monitor, are actually currently easing policies. Um, and that's the thing that the cycle is turning is turned up. That that is the key thing. Now, what and, I want sorry, to was that was that chart an equal weighted chart that says 30 percent easing or, or is that the a dotted line, line is equally weighted? The orange line is size weighted. Okay, so it is important to note that that um, size weighted or market weighted, if you will, uh, liquidity is 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 increasing across the globe here. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Now, what I'm going to do is move on to this analysis, which is basically how we see the world going in the future. And this is looking at the global liquidity cycle. This is our standard asset allocation framework, which is looking at liquidity as that orange cycle. We split that into four regimes that we call generically turbulence, rebound, calm, and speculation. The, or, the red line is the economic or risk cycle, which tends to lag that. And the red splodge on there, the red dot, is inflections in yield curves. This is what you'd expect slightly after the inflection in the liquidity cycle, the yield curve inflects. Uh, then, so in other words, the bond market is the first financial market really to respond. And then you start to get uh, uh, the economy responding afterwards. This is why liquidity and markets 
lead the real economy. So you never forecast financial markets from the economy, rather vice versa. Now, if we move on to what you'd expect to see at this stage of the cycle, consider this slide, Adam. What it shows is on the left-hand side, asset classes, and on the right-hand side, industry groups. The red, the red, green, uh, amber uh, blodges there, uh, splodges are traffic lights, think of them that way. And we are in the first column of each block in rebound. That's what we call this phase of the investment cycle. Liquidity inflecting upwards early stages. So in rebound, what you'd have expected, and this, by the way, is based on historic experience. This is not what we're seeing currently, necessarily. It's what history tells you always happens in a rebound. You want to take your risk amber. So you can take a bit of risk. You've got to be careful. Proceed with caution. You want to be overweight equities and credits. You want to be underweight commodities and bond duration. That's what the cycle should tell you this year was all about. And I would argue that's more or less what we've seen. On the right-hand side, if you're in rebound, you should be overweight cyclicals, overweight technology, and underweight defensive stocks. And that's more or less been correct. Okay. As we move on, transition to calm, you want to be more risk on. You want to have keep your equities, pair your credits a little bit, start to build up commodities instead, but don't take any bond duration. And then in stocks, industry groups, you want to keep with cyclicals, keep with technology, start to move into financials and start to build up positions in energy, but remain underweight defensives. Now, if we're correct, and I say if, there's always a health warning with these uh, with these analyses, but if we're correct, you should start to see financials beginning to outperform and energy stocks getting a bid and commodity markets beginning to lift off, if this is correct. And that's what we're looking for, for that consistency uh, within the framework. Now, a piece of evidence, and I'm going to move on to um, a chart a little bit later here. So this chart is actually this same data, which you saw earlier for the global liquidity cycle, which has actually been um, narrowed down to the US in orange. So it's this US component. And the black line is the average US yield curve. Now, this is without dancing on the head of a pin and saying, is this the 210 spread, the three-month, 10-year? Is it the five-year, 10-year? This is the average US yield curve, which in the literature is called the intensity uh, of the term structure. And this basically shows that liquidity has been advanced by nine months, and it is leading the slope of the yield curve. So what we'd expect is as the liquidity cycle picks up, the yield curve begins to steepen. And that's exactly what we think is going on right now. Now, if you hold that thought and you consider that Jay Powell and co colleagues will want to get the front end of the term structure, i.e. policy rates down by probably, the market is now expecting 100 basis points or so next year, and the yield curve steepens, the outlook for the long end of the market is not gonna be that favorable. And therefore, we still think holding bond duration is not a great idea in this environment where liquidity is expanding again. But we may be unusual in that regard. But hey, that's uh, that's the nature of things. All right. And there's actually a lot of where bond yields are headed is one of the more debated issues, I would say, of the folks that I've had on this program. I'd almost kind of put it 50-50. Some say it's a great time to go long duration. Some say it's not. Definitely put you in the not camp. Um, mm -hmm. But you're not certainly alone in there. Right. And what I want to do 
right now is just the focus on the longer term. And I want to show you uh, a couple of charts which hopefully will uh, explain this backdrop. This chart here is looking at a very wonkish concept that I'm not going to go into in great detail, but it's a component of bond markets, which is very, very important to understand, which is like the risk premium on bonds, or actually, as it's called, the term premium, because it basically applies to the term structure, the far end of the term structure. It's what affects bond market returns. And that is the black line. And the higher that black line, the more yield premium that you're going to start to uh, bake into the bond markets. So in other words, if that black line goes up, it's not good news for a bondholder, OK, uh, because it's saying interest rates are going up at the long end. And the orange line is a measure of the amount of collateral, if you like, that is being supplied uh, into the markets by the US authorities. In other words, coupon issuance. Uh, and what we've subtracted from this is the normal buying of foreign investors um, of US debt. And that in itself may be problematic. But nonetheless, the orange line is a marker to say this is the likely supply of coupon debt in the markets. And the, this is a, a growth rate, as you see on the right hand slide. Now, the bottom line here is that coupon supply, treasury bond issuance is going up at a faster clip. And that is going to be pushing interest rates up at the long end of the market. And that is what we have uh, argued is likely to cause monetary inflation. And here is why. OK, this is the long term picture of effective supply of collateral in black taken from the Congressional Budget Office forecast, which in itself may be conservative. The orange line is the same CBO estimates of what the Federal Reserve would take up of that coupon supply. So I've called it net liquidity injection into the markets. That's what it is. But there is a very clear divergence between those two lines. I think that is impossible. I think the Federal Reserve has to keep up its buying pace because there won't be many other buyers. And they will seek to try and keep interest rates low by buying as much long dated debt as they can. Uh, or if you like, uh, I'm not going to say cheating, but you know what I mean by manipulating the markets through excessive bill issuance, which is what's going on now. Um, that is important. And what it means is that the hurdle you've got to jump in the US, which is the chart that I foreshadowed earlier on, is this one. This is not our data. It's data that comes from the IMF and the Congressional Budget Office. And it shows in orange the debt GDP ratio prospectively of the US economy out to 2050. OK, it tests 250 percent. The red dotted line is Britain over the same period from 1800 or just thereafter, uh, right through until, uh, again, uh, 2050. But the British data is not quite as extensive. But it does show very neatly the fact that in the, the 1930s, 40s, 50s and 60s, the British economy, the time when it, its economy started to seriously underperform the rest of the world, had a very, very high debt to GDP ratio. That debt to GDP ratio was progressively brought down by high inflation, and it was brought down again by Thatcher's government, uh, restraining government spending. But the fact is that Britain's very bad economic performance coincided with high public debt to GDP. It's not a good sign. What this chart is saying is there's a challenge for the US. How does the US afford this high amount of debt to GDP? And the answer basically means they've got to start creating liquidity. This chart here is saying history tells us that the ratio between debt 
and liquidity for the advanced economies worldwide is nearly constant at 250%. So in other words, for every uh, $25 you have in debt, you need $10 of liquidity. It's that straightforward. And that means that liquidity has to start increasing uh, as well. Now, the convenient point is that if you look at our projections of the Federal Reserve balance sheet, what that shows is the Fed balance sheet has to start ramping up significantly to start taking on some of this debt. And that is the source of liquidity that the system is getting. The orange bars are the Congressional Budget Office figures. The gray bars are our estimates, assuming defense spending, which goes up to 5% of GDP, and a halt to QT, the current QT, because rate cuts start to get put in. And that uh, shows how much the Fed balance sheet can expand. And if you think the previous peak was about just over 8 trillion, we're going to surpass that uh, probably easily by 2026. So we're all, you know, we're firing again on all cylinders of an expanding Fed balance sheet. Don't say that won't happen because the Congressional Budget Office itself, uh, the bipartisan body, has also got this penciled in of an expanding Fed balance sheet. The numbers above the bars are the percentage increases. But the important point is that it's not the balance sheet that matters, it's Fed liquidity, the number within that. And that's the expansion in Fed liquidity that we that we reckon is coming. And those double-digit rates of expansion uh, are effectively a monetary inflation that is underway. I'm not hitting on the US because, as I said before, the US is the cleanest shirt in the laundry. Okay, Others are in worse shape, uh, but this is what's happening. I think the dollar as a paper currency will outperform the euro and other paper units but it may not outperform monetary hedges, dedicated monetary hedges, which I'll come on to. If you don't think our numbers are correct, take the CBO numbers in orange or take a halfway house. But the numbers still look very, very worrying, whichever one you take. Now, if you, I'm going to move on here. I'm going to skip through China. I'm going to skip through the dollar. And I'm going to come to this, uh, th this chart here. This is looking at the correlation between the price of gold and global liquidity. Global liquidity is in orange, and the black line is the growth rate in the price of gold over a three-month span, and liquidity has been advanced here. For those of people that are statisticians or wonkish in that regard, there is a statistical analysis at the bottom called a Granger causality test, which looks it decides whether um, Gold is the leading indicator of liquidity or liquidity is the leading indicator of gold. And it comes down unequivocally to say that over a six month span, liquidity drives gold higher. And that's what it's basically saying. Gold is a brilliant monetary inflation hedge. Gold is not a high street inflation hedge. It is a monetary inflation hedge. The subtle difference is that high street prices embrace both monetary inflation, the devaluation of paper money, and costs like higher or lower oil prices or productivity gains or taxes or whatever. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about monetary inflation, devaluation of paper money by central banks. And that is what gold is the most brilliant hedge at. This is the long-term picture. Uh, going back to 1975, the orange line is the stock of gold added to that crypto. And I've said, let's consider for a moment that things like Bitcoin are also monetary inflation hedges and add the market capitalization of crypto to that of the market capitalization of gold and chart it as the orange line. 
The black line is our measure of global liquidity extrapolated to the end of 2025. Uh, and you can see whether that's a decent or not relationship. Uh, essentially, they're moving in the same trend. And I think it's a fairly decent guide. Uh, if you think monetary inflation is picking up, then the gold price is going to go up and Bitcoin is going to go up. And some people, uh, you know, I've even done it myself, slightly tongue in cheek, call Bitcoin exponential gold because it's very, very sensitive to liquidity. For the record, the dotted line at the bottom is US CPI inflation. Since 1995, gold has gone up five times. Global liquidity has gone up five times and US consumer prices have gone up two times. So gold is a monetary inflation hedge, not necessarily a high street inflation hedge. It may be better than a high street inflation, who knows? But that's the story. And that's why we think if you look forward, more liquidity is coming. It's coming cyclically because the Federal Reserve is gonna start easing in the next few months. It's gonna to add to liquidity. It's coming because in the medium term, it's the only way out of this debt problem. You've gotta start monetizing the debt. And uh, that's that's the reality. All right. What's so interesting about this is, um, uh, it, again, it explains the price action of gold and uh, and Bitcoin uh, over 2022, right? Where we had CPI, you know, jump up to nine percent, and yet gold was pretty flat for the year. So folks were pretty disappointed who had bought gold in anticipation of high inflation because they're like, oh my goodness, we got you know super high inflation now, and gold's not really going anywhere. And of course, Bitcoin, you know, got walloped throughout 2022. But if you look at it in terms of liquidity, well, liquidity was decreasing in that year, right? And now that liquidity right. is back on the upturn, Bitcoin has more than doubled, right? And gold is at all-time highs now or has touched all-time highs. Right. So um, so again, yeah, uh, that correlation you're talking about, we're, we've definitely seen that script play out in the past 12 months. I agree. So 24 months, so, yeah. Yeah, so that that's the, the story is that, you know, next year should be a decent year. And, you know, as we as as you know, we say, look, look at how markets operate. I mean, basically, if the uh you know, if the business outlook goes from ghastly to just bad, you make most of your money in markets traditionally. Uh, and if the market environment goes from excellent to just good, that's when you lose most money. And I think if you look at where we are on the on the spectrum, we're probably moving from what was ghastly, particularly in the time of COVID, uh, to what maybe people would argue is now just bad economically. But that's actually when you make a lot of money and you lose your money when it goes from excellent to just good. And I think we're a long, long way from being excellent. We're probably still in the bad phase. So that suggests to me that cycle wise, this is not a bad time to be investing. It sounds like you think it's a really good time to be investing. So, um, so let's talk about that for a second because there's kind of two, two things that we've we've talked about here. One is, um, you know, you're, you're saying, look, there's a secular uh, trend going here of 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 higher liquidity um, over the next, you know, couple decades, right? And there you're saying that's going to be hand in hand with monetary inflation. Um, for the reasons you just mentioned. And so you need to have dedicated monetary hedges. So you put gold in that. It sounds like you put Bitcoin in that as well. Um, then there's kind of the cycle like you're talking about. And, and I believe that's back to your, your stoplight slide mm -hmm. that you showed us, right? Um, so uh, remind me of the four phases of the stoplight. There's... Well, we think of four, four phases of the cycle, which is basically uh, rebound, what we then call calm, 
speculation, and then turbulence. Those are the okay. those are the four phases that we tend okay. to think. Okay, so so we're in rebound right now, which is where you right. said that's where you tend to make your most your biggest gains, where you go from ghastly to pretty yeah. good. Um, so obviously, for folks that are that are they're watching, and folks, if you're listening on a podcast and you didn't see that chart, you've got to find your way to the YouTube channel to see that chart because it's it's I think it's super important to understand what Michael thinks is going to happen. Um, you know, he basically shows you okay, these are the the, the different asset classes and, and sectors you want to be in, uh, given where we are right now and rebound. Um, how, how do you help people th think about this? In other words, you laid out in your stoplight chart, hey, if you want to play the rebound, these are the, these, these are the ways to think about positioning. You had commodities on that chart, which were red in the rebound. I'm going to assume gold and Bitcoin might be a little bit different than your average commodity uh, for the reasons, for the lens that you look through. Um, but is like this one of the great times to be in gold and Bitcoin? Or are you saying you should have that in your portfolio as sort of a long-term position to weather, you know, the, the next couple of decades? Oh, I think that I think cyclically, uh, gold is getting a bid now, and so is Bitcoin. And I think for the reasons the liquidity cycle is turning up. But I think that my argument for holding both those assets in portfolios is a long-term argument because I think we're going to get more monetary inflation. Now let me just emphasize, more monetary inflation doesn't necessarily mean that high street prices will be going up fast. I mean, it's logical to assume they will, but it's not necessarily the case because it, you've got to add into the equation what's happening to costs. And if you get massive cost deflation, and that could arise because, for example, China devalues the renminbi significantly or oil prices collapse uh, or there's a productivity miracle or something like that, uh, all those factors could actually dent consumer price inflation. Uh, irrespective of what monetary inflation is doing. So I think you've got to differentiate the two. But I'm arguing here is that gold and Bitcoin are protections against the monetary authorities worldwide devaluing credit money or paper money. And that, that's really the point. You've got to have it in portfolios because that has to be in the name of the game. And I think if you reflect on where we are in the uh, political cycle, the, uh, the COVID crisis was the first ever crisis that we faced where spending was not funded by tax increases or increasing debt. It was funded by basically printing money. And that's, I think, a heads up. Ask the question whether it be Biden or whether it be Trump uh, in 2024, is either of those going to raise taxes? I think highly unlikely. Uh, and you can say exactly the same for Europe. If you start to, uh, if you're a politician and you your uh, manifesto says, I'm going to raise taxes, uh, just forget it. Uh, no one's in that game. So effectively, they're going to kick the can down the road, which means more monetization, whatever they may say now. Okay. Um, God, we're going to have to leave it there. Michael, I'm just looking at the time here. We, we've gone more than 10 minutes over the hour. Um, so I failed in trying to keep this uh, to a respectful time frame for you. Uh, and even just their last, your last point there, I feel like I could talk with you for another hour or two um, on, on that question, plus a whole number of questions I've written down here that we just can't get to today. But Michael, this has been wonderful. Um, love to invite you back on the program anytime you want to come on. But 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 if I can kind of publicly commit you here, when you think we are um, moving from rebound to calm, love to have you come back on here just so cool. folks folks know, hey, it's it's time to switch from you know one set of stoplights to to another set. Um, really important question for folks that have really enjoyed this discussion. Maybe this is the first time they're being exposed to your work. And Michael, I'm sure you made the vast majority of the uh, viewers here today really think in a way they, they haven't been thinking of late. Um, and so anyways, if those folks want to follow you in your work, where should they go? 
Well, if you uh, want to read up on what we do uh, from a more theoretical point of view, there is a book I wrote about three or four years ago called Capital Wars that's published by uh, Palgrave uh, and it's available on, on Amazon. Uh, I mean, hopefully these days at a discount. So that that's one avenue. The uh, second thing is that we have a substack with the same name, which is called Capital Wars, which is uh, written up probably at least twice a week containing data and analyses. And our website is... Uh, crossbordercapital.com and the twitter handle is at crossbordercap so that's the array of uh, you know of, uh, of channels that you can tune into fantastic and michael when i edit this i will put up overlays to each of those assets um folks i'll also put links in the description below too so you can get one click access to them um and folks if if you too would like to see Michael come back when he's got an update for us. Um, please encourage him to do so by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Um, Michael, this has been great. Um, concluding question for you. This is something that I've been asking um, uh, a lot, a number of my guests recently, and folks have really been enjoying it. You've taken us through a, a, just a, a really fascinating mental exercise here on the financial side of things and, and told us how you think people should consider positioning given your financial outlook. Putting money aside for a second, is there a non-financial investment that you would encourage people to consider making in their lives? One, one that you think is, is either, you know, create a lot of value for you or just in kind of looking at the world thinking, oh, if people do more of this, it'd be a better place for them. Yeah, I mean, interesting point point to ponder, Adam. I mean, I'd say, I mean, not, number one must be invest in your health. I think that's that's the most important investment anyone can make. I think invest time in books and particularly history books. I mean, wouldn't waste time with economics books. I'd look at history books, uh, economic history books, because that's going to tell you an awful lot about uh, what has happened in the past. And I think if you want uh, both a uh, uh, an investment that may make you money, an investment that will actually help your uh, your sanity, invest in art. Because uh, even if uh, the price of art goes down, you can still enjoy some great, great pictures. So I think I'd look at, I'd look in those areas. All right, great. Uh, fantastic answer. Uh, well, thank you so much, Michael. Like I said, uh, you're welcome back on the program anytime. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Much enjoyed it, Adam. Thank you. All right. Well, now's the time of the program where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the endorsed financial advisory firms by Thoughtful Money, uh, to react to what Michael just said there and also give us uh, any update they think is germane to what's going on uh, in the markets over the past week. I'm joined as usual by John Loder and Mike Preston. Guys, thanks so much for joining. Um, let's see, uh, Mike, why don't we start with you this time? Uh, you know, in some ways, pretty mind-blowing, you know, what we just talked about with Michael, which was sort of like, look, you know, liquidity is the thing and everything else is is secondary or a distant tertiary factor. And we just got to look at where liquidity is heading. And, and that really is going to tell the tale. And in Michael's outlook, liquidity is going to keep rising for the foreseeable future. So even though stocks have partied hard into the end of 2023 here, he expects 2024 to be a pretty good year, at least until the liquidity situation changes. So curious to get your take. Uh, and also, guys, as, as we talk here, would love to get a sense for how, if at all, you take the liquidity situation into your portfolio allocation decisions there at New Harbor. Well, thank you, Adam. I mean, liquidity is important. Michael talked a lot about liquidity, obviously, and he's he's pretty bullish and and I certainly like his optimism. You know, when when he answered your first question, what his viewpoint was on the global economy and markets, he said he's broadly positive and upbeat. And um, you know, I I would say that we are probably too in the very near term, but we have overriding concerns that 
um, you know, it's certainly about valuations and other things that keep us very cautious. And maybe that's a curse <laughs> of looking at the data uh, or looking at the data that we look at versus the data that Michael looks at. But Michael talks about the global liquidity index and he presents a lot of different charts that are pretty compelling, right? Um, there was one chart that he showed that showed that the, liquid, the global liquidity index bottomed in October of 2022, you know, and it's been moving higher since. And it's it's certainly hard to argue that the market hasn't been moving higher. Um, what I don't understand, and perhaps I just need to do a little more reading and research on this, is exactly how is the how is the index constructed? How is liquidity measured? It's it's not easy. You know, he talked about a number of different things about liquidity increasing because of the reversal of the bank term financing program, and um, or, or the rollout of that, and the reversal of the you know the repo program, or starting to unwind that. It's 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 difficult to understand the details of the data, and again, it's probably my own. Um, ignorance of how they in the index is constructed but i want to know exactly how is that measured and there there is some empirical evidence that shows that liquidity itself in a vacuum doesn't really doesn't doesn't really push up markets um so you know the the fed has been easing or was easing in the the, the past bear markets you know in the after the the housing market or breakdown in 2008 2009 and also during you know, the, the, the tech bust, but the markets continue to go down even with more liquidity and more easing. So, you know, overall, I think that we agree that the technicals in the market look very strong near term. Now, this market has defied almost all odds and moved in a straight line. It was a record close, I think nine, nine or 10 record closes yesterday for the Dow. Um, you know, the S&P has been on a tear. Small caps and mid caps have started to join the party, all of the things that we're noticing and we've been talking about every week. So near term, we agree that things look bullish, but I don't know exactly how to use that in day-to-day -day action, you know, on the portfolio level, at least for us. There's a lot of other things we look at, you know, near-term technicals, relative strength, uh, bullish charts, but always we're really concerned about the big picture as we know at some point that matters. And so my question after watching that video is, okay, if, if liquidity continues and continues to increase, you know, then what? What's the end game of all of this? You know, because he talks about the fact that the debt has to be monetized. Well, that's that's true. You know, he talked about the fact that um, I think it was I wrote it down here somewhere: three hundred and fifty trillion dollars in debt. You know, three hundred and fifty trillion dollars in debt and five-year average maturity. It's like $70 trillion a year have to be rolled over. Uh, it's pretty crazy. And so what's the end game of all of this? And that's, you know, maybe we're just in a new era that we're still figuring out the rules, but, and this is what the Fed has created. You know, we all have to kind of create new variables and new ways to look at things, but the fundamentals and the valuations are not going to be wrong long-term. And so we all have to think about what the end game is here. And that's what we're concerned about. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the crux. That that was sort of the the sacred cow, if you will, that I think Michael was maybe you know targeting with a spear there, which is maybe valuations don't really matter in this new world where uh, liquidity flows really you know determine the fate of everything. So um, you know, a couple of things. So how this all ends, just want to underscore what Michael had said, which is you know he said, look, you got to get monetary inflation hedges. Right. And I know that you guys at New Harbor are, you know, gold is a core part of your portfolio. Uh, that's definitely a, a big part of Michael's long term 
portfolio as well. He also likes Bitcoin, um, but but essentially for this reason, right? That the central banks are just going to keep monetizing and basically destroying the purchasing power of the currency. Um, to your point, Mike, about like you know how do we measure this? That 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 to me is the most interesting part. Is there are all these different charts out there on the internet measuring liquidity in different ways? I'd say if there was a new piece to the puzzle that Michael brought to me um, was that in his definition of liquidity, it really was more balance sheet capacity, right? It's not necessarily like capital flowing into the market at any given moment in time. It's the ability of the system to take on more debt, right? Um, and he said, there's there's still a fair amount of, of, of ability out there. And of course, the Fed has just taken a trillion off of its balance sheet. There's no reason it couldn't turn around and add a trillion you know, right back. Right. Um, also, as as on the corporate side, as as prices continue to rise aggressively, like they are, well, debt to equity ratios go down, which give them, you know, uh, legitimacy to go out and raise more debt if they want to in their capital structure. So that was a really interesting um, piece to the puzzle. But but John, I'm going to go to you now. You and I were talking right before we turned the camera on here, and you were talking about the transmission mechanism of liquidity, um, which you have to understand that. Like, as Mike said, liquidity in a vacuum, it, it's not as simple as higher liquidity, all boats rise, even though oftentimes it kind of looks that way. Um, you have to actually have a way for that liquidity to get transmitted out into the system to do what it needs to do. Um, and potentially um, you can get into a situation where liquidity is going up, but it's not really having that much of an impact. That's that sort of famous pushing on a string scenario. So um uh, expound a little bit more on, on on that and just sort of your general views on liquidity too. Yeah, so I I, I too found uh, Michael's discussion very very informative. I'm, I'm really appreciative that he uh, brings a, a deeper level of of this concept of liquidity uh, because there are a proliferation of very simple um, in, uh, definitions that make for great charts out in the internet, but are are, are quite misleading. Yeah, I can't, I can't can't tell you how many charts I saw over, over earlier this year showing a chart of like M2 money supply across the world and plotting it uh, on a chart with the S&P 500. And there, you know, over the summer, there was this jaw that opened up, basically implying that one or the other had to give either liquidity had to uh, be injected or the S&P had to pull back. And um, the problem with that, and I saw a fabulous uh, discussion, I wouldn't call it a debate between Michael Howell and uh, Another widely respected and followed uh, uh, strategist, Andy Constant, and I think you may uh, wish to get him on your program sometime. He, he, I think he'd be a great um, uh, guest for you, and perhaps even a conversation with with Andy and uh, and Michael. They're both, as I understand, both Solomon Brothers uh, alumni. Um, anyways, uh, they they both have critiqued some of those those charts. You know, and those charts are are rife with what we call chart crimes. Different you know, slights of hand that oftentimes make a chart look uh, correlated, but but really not. Um, but but I really appreciated this notion of, of balance sheet capacity. And, and that is a transmission mechanism. And the, the one thing I would like to add, and I, I wish more than a critique of Michael's comments, more of a question and maybe a follow-on discussion with him, our sense, and we see it in, in practice all the time, you, you, you mentioned the, the, the notion of the Fed pushing on the string. And really what that speaks to is... Um, when you have a system, whether it's an economic economic system, a market, there's this notion of binding constraints that there's something that's in short supply relative to demand for it. You know, the market, the the economy wants more credit, but there's a shortage of that credit. Um, but there there are times where those constraints are not binding, and adding more of something doesn't 
transmit anymore because there's already a surplus. So let me give a couple examples. And, and that that Fed pushing on the string, when there's enough, you know, Fed liquidity in the system, them adding more, the notion of pushing on the string is it doesn't do anything. It doesn't transmit any additional benefits. It just kind of finds its way and piles up in the economy. And you might, I think, rightly say that's uh, what happened in, in in spades over the last decade plus, you know, a, a massive amount of reserves. John Hussman has, has talked about this notion of a um, uh, liquidity press preference curve. Right now, that's there's about 28% of GDP in Fed-based reserves, reverse repo, and and, and uh, credit. That could be cut in in, in by by 75% and still uh, not have a material impact on on the short-term Treasury rate. That that's what this this curve speaks to. In other words, there's way too much reserves in the system. Um, I might point to the banking crisis earlier this year in the spring. Basically what happened there, um, banks had way more liquidity than they, they they wanted and needed, yet they didn't have the demand for, for loans. They had plenty of balance sheet capacity to lend out money, but the demand for, for credit was not there. So what did they do? They went and bought treasury bill, uh, bonds, long-term treasury bonds at, at really low interest rates, uh, which is just another form of lending. Instead of lending to a commercial property developer or a business looking to, to expand, they lent to the US government. And, and boy, what what a problem that turned out to be. So, you know, I think that's a, maybe a really good example of, yeah, there's plenty of liquidity, but if there's not demand for that liquidity in the system, in the balance sheets and the economic engine of the system, it, it doesn't transmit in, in the form. And, and the bottom line is our discipline, we're very mindful and we're very cognizant about big picture valuations and things like that. And we'll never let our guard down about those kinds of things, but we let the market speak to us. Uh, Michael himself said many times the commentators have it wrong. They look to the economy to, to lead the market. And, and we see it the other way. We look at price trends and price action as a, um, at least in a short-term sense, uh, a, a, a predictor of you know perhaps the economy. Um, but that's a very short-term because markets are notoriously bad at predicting recessions. If you look at a chart of the S&P 500, always peaks right before uh, a recession, right? Um, so those are some of the key takeaways I have. Uh, I, think, I think the real critical piece, and Andy Constant made this point in the in the discussion I see, you know, you got to take that liquidity, but also kind of focus on the transmission and, and risk across different asset classes, it's not just stocks we're talking about here. It's bonds, it's commodities, and it's the interplay between those that really matters. You can't say the S&P is going to go up just because there's more more liquidity. Uh, it's not quite that simple in our in our assessment. Okay, so <clears throat> let's get down to the rubber meeting the road here, which is I'm looking at a lot of the folks that have come on this channel recently, and I'm now sort of beginning to see three sort of camps. Um, you've got the Felix Zulofs and the Darius Dales on one side who say, um, look, history shows, like you just said, John, you know, the market parties its hardest, you know, right up before it, it has a big correction, right? Um, I mean, Felix was on the channel uh, you know, he basically said he he can see the market powering higher through Q1. Um, you know, he had picked 5,000 at, at this rate. Looks like we might get there a lot sooner than the end of Q1. Um, but he said that's going to be a top tick. Uh, and then for a bunch of other reasons we discussed in that interview, uh, he thinks that the S&P is going to have a, a pretty severe correction. You know, he, he said it could be as much as 40 percent, you know, ending 40 percent lower um, from the high at the end of 2024. Right. Darius Dale, I think, has a, a somewhat similar um, outlook. I don't know uh, what size correction he's looking for later in the year. I'm going to have him on the program in early January, so we'll find out soon. Um, but uh, 
uh, in fact, I'm interviewing him just two days from now, so we'll we'll know really soon. Um, but but you know, he does expect kind of like a you know a, a rager, you know, a melt up in the markets uh, that gets everybody piled in, and then of course there's there's the rug pull, right? So so I would call that one camp the camp of the rug pull. The second is, um, you know, John Hussman. We show his his uh, forward projected returns chart on this channel a lot. I was talking to Cameron Dawson the other day. She has sort of a similar concern that we just might be looking at a set of a series of lost years ahead of us, right? Where the market kind of goes nowhere uh, because valuations have been pulled in today by this exuberance that we're seeing. Um, so that's just one where you know your projected returns look look really uh, disappointing. You know, not terrible, but but just you know you're 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 losing purchasing power by not growing your wealth. And then the third camp um, is guys like Howell, right? Michael Howell, where he thinks we're in rebound, right? And we're going to have a great two years from here. You know, the economy is going to grow. Markets are going to keep powering higher, powering higher for the next two years. So you've got, you know, these three very distinct possibilities here and very smart people who can argue for each one. Nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows what's going to happen for sure. So how do you guys... How are you guys positioning right now, uh, keeping in mind the potential possibilities of these these outcomes? John, why don't we start with you, and then Mike will go to you because I also want to talk about gold a little bit here if we got time. Sure, a couple of quick comments on that. So yeah, we agree that whether we're talking about a a, a, a follow through rally that lasts for another couple of days or a couple of months or even a couple of years, that the decade ahead is likely to look very very disappointing. From a, a I want to emphasize a passive buy and hold investment approach. Because what we expect is a likely scenario is we're going to get a major pullback, major crash even. Uh, and it's from those events from which uh, a, a bleak picture long term that exists right now becomes a very positive picture. And it's all about avoiding those big declines. So our, our approach right now is, is very balanced. We have, um, you know, under we're definitely underweight stocks compared to most traditional advisors. Um, but we're we're overweight in areas that are better valuations, better relative strength. So we're trying to pick the the, the horses that are leading the, the, this charge. And John, just to be clear, you guys have been adding to you've been increasing your stock exposure over yeah. Q4, right? Yeah, in a very measured measured way. Um, we use hedging tools. We use options in very conservative hedging ways. So, for example, the day before um, last, I think it was last week's Fed meeting, we added about 10% notional uh, exposure to broad equal weight S and P index. Uh, we did so by buying call options. That essentially is the financial equivalent of, of buying that index and buying a put put option, a downside hedge. And it just happens that uh, volatility is very low right now. So, so that embedded insurance is very cheap. So we're able to add some, some exposure to, to capture some follow through upside, which so far has happened. But we had this line in the sand that the market could collapse and and we you know our clients wouldn't be you know really that harmed because of the, the the essentially the 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 embedded put option there and and um you know we 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 sell call options at opportune times I'll just share a chart here right now because as 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 positive as near term indicators are I do want to make the point that we're getting very stretched on the short term this is a chart it's it's called the point and figure chart. And basically, what this is the S and P 500 SPX, and it's 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 what's referred to as a 10-week chart. It's basically the 50-day uh, moving average and, and the range around that in terms of overbought, oversold. And basically, you see right here, we're about 88%. 100% is 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 two standard deviations. Um, so very rarely do we get this high, 
And in fact, the last several times we did, you see a pullback, a, a column of O's is a pullback. And, and at the other end of the spectrum, you had, for example, uh, September, October last year, very low. So this is a notion of a, a pendulum swinging, swinging back and forth. And, uh, you know, right now we're, we're really at the crescendo, a, a near-term crescendo of that pe pendulum. So we'd not be at all, all surprised to see markets pull back a little bit. In fact, we just did sell some call options on some of our equity positions to bring in some premium in anticipation of a possible pullback. And this is just a more broad look at the different markets and sectors. You know, 100 here is basically two standard deviations around the 50-day moving average. Pretty, pretty stretched. There are some some areas like the Dow Jones, um, you know, uh, the aggregate bond index that are, are more than two standard deviations beyond the upside of, of their moving average. On the other hand, you have the dollar, for example, is oversold. We actually added a, a very modest bullish dollar position within the last week. Um, so we're, we're, there's a lot of things are, are forgetting evaluations uh, for a moment. A lot of things that are, are bullish on a short term basis, but we're getting really, really stretched. So we're, we're you know, being very cautious at this point in time. Um, but we're still holding plenty of, um, I think, about 40% 40, 40 or so in short-term treasuries, still getting uh, five plus percent um, yield. And uh, we think that's a very appropriate place to be. Let me make one, one real important point. You know, if we do get a blow off of another couple percent here, may, getting that or not is not what's going to dictate our clients' success over their lifetimes. We, we will not lose sight of that real fact. So, you know, understand that we're looking to add incrementally to clients forward progress, but the real game here is, is being intact and managing very conservatively in light of the bigger picture, because uh, we want this money to be there 30, 40 years for them or as long as they should live. Great. Yeah. So even though there may be a few percentage points still still to be got here, it's not worth the risk of stretching for it when the market's this extended where the snapback risk is, is as high as it is right now. All right, and, and that's you know that's why uh, treasuries right now really are the prudent investor's best friend. Meaning, if you get to a point where you just want to park in safety for a little bit, you can finally get a good return on it and a, a positive real return on it. Which, as we've talked about a number of times, you just haven't been able to get for much of the past decade plus, right? Um, all right, Mike, coming to you here. Feel free to add on anything that John said um, as we wrap up here because we're getting tight on time. Um, if you can just give an update on two of your, um, I think, bigger positions uh, mm -hmm. there at New Harbor. One is gold, and gold has been, you know, it, it's been back near all-time highs, uh, positively re reacting to the dovish Fed uh, news. Uh, and then anything you want to say about the long bond uh, TLT trade, because um, we get a lot of people watching that closely, especially as as bond prices, sorry, bond yields have been coming down, and that that trade's beginning to wake back up again. All right, sure, Adam. Just a further point about um, the overboughtness or the overbullishness of the S&P. Let me just move this over here. And here's a daily chart of the S&P. Hope you can see this, Adam. And, um, you know, so we had a breakout back here. This is called a breakaway gap. We became concerned about the market going on another run once it, once it uh, was challenging this downtrend. And sure enough, it's moved higher almost in a you know, uninterrupted fashion. And so, but if you look down here, this is the RSI, the relative strength index. And, you know, it, it doesn't very often get this overbought. It doesn't mean the market has to immediately turn. In fact, the RSI can stay overbought for a long, long time. 
But if you couple that with the fact that I think it was either yesterday or the day before we saw record inflows into SPY, SPY is the ETF that, that essentially owns the S&P 500. It's the world's largest ETF. And it saw the largest inflow in a single day the other day, you know, so much so that they had to create a record number of shares, new shares to accommodate it. So, you know, this is this is, hasn't been a normal market. This hasn't even been a normal error that we've been living through. And so it, it's, it's quite likely and possible that we do get a further blow off here. This is the daily chart. You go to the weekly chart, you'll see that what is this nine weeks straight up, you know, certainly has been a Santa Claus rally. And here we are challenging the old all-time high. It won't be long, I don't think, till we go through there. So you talked about the opinions that you have on your program, and most of them are most of them are relatively close, or at least they rhyme. I think that Michael Howell was a little bit different, and that he was more bullish for the intermediate term. But some of your guests say we're going to spike higher than crash. Others say we might go straight down from here. I know that we've been on the record being concerned for a long time, even though we think near term. We're kind of in the camp of a little higher than lower, but it doesn't really matter that much. Nobody knows the actual path, to be honest. We certainly don't know. We know how it's going to end because history tells us so. You know, valuations are are ridiculously high, you know, up around 40 times margin adjusted earnings, um, you know, on a Schiller basis. Stark market cap to GDP is close to 200%. You know, I mean, any number of, you know, 10 different variables you can look at are off the charts. And so liquidity may be a tailwind for a while, but it won't, it, you know, the, it doesn't, valuations won't lie forever. It will matter. We don't know what the catalyst is going to be. And unless productivity or GDP explodes upwards to accommodate these valuations, uh, the market's going to come down. You know, you mentioned, Hussman earlier, John Hussman, his model shows that valuations or normal valuations would be at around 16 to 1800 on the S&P. So, you know, whether it dropped from here or dropped from 6,000 or 7,000, it doesn't much matter. It's still a lot lower than here. Uh, other models like uh, GMO's model, uh, Jeremy Grantham's firm, show essentially flat to negative returns over the next seven years. You know, valuations won't matter. The path is uh, impossible to know. And here we are, you know, we're up to 30 plus percent equities um, hedged. Uh, if you include the in the money call option that we did, we're mid 30s maybe. So we're doing our best to to participate a little bit, um, but, you know, we won't go anywhere near all in at these levels. And we have to constantly be careful about our reversal. So we're okay with that. That's the bargain that we that we strike. You know, we we know that we can't participate if the market goes vertical from here. We're only going to get a piece of it, and that's all right. So, you know, that's what I wanted to add on the S and P. So let's talk about two more things. You mentioned uh, gold, and uh, I think you mentioned bonds too. Yep. So a weekly chart of gold. This is GLD as a proxy. Well, essentially, gold is actually. I'm going to go to a month here. Because a monthly chart's better in terms of understanding it. This giant cup and handle. It's definitely a stretched out handle, but this is a basically 13, 14 years and um, an inverted head and shoulders. This is the head. There's, there's a complex shoulder, another shoulder here, and a triple top. And triple tops don't usually hold. And so gold on the monthly chart absolutely looks like it wants to break higher. About a week or so ago, we saw 2130, I think, in the futures market. It sharply reversed. 
We're at around 2,030 on the spot. We'll move back into the, uh, the closer chart. So it has been consolidating for three or four weeks. So frustrating for gold bulls because it literally looks like it wants to go, but it hasn't yet. And the same thing with gold stocks um, and silver stocks. And silver itself, I'll bring up as well. It looks very similar. If I went out to a monthly chart of silver, I find it very interesting that we've got this giant triangle that's been forming for the last few years. And just a few weeks ago, it looked like we we're finally breaking out. And then we came back into the triangle. And so here we are again. I'll go back to the week. You know, we broke out here a couple of weeks ago and then failure. So we'll see. What we need is one big week, silver to break higher, gold to break higher, and the miners will absolutely follow. You know, the miners have been underperforming, but they also are coiling up. Um, the market hasn't paid that much attention to them. If this happens, and I believe it will, um, we'll, we're going to see these miners start to move. So that's that's gold. Let's take a quick look at long-term bonds, TLT. All right, so here's TLT on the weekly chart. TLT has been absolutely obliterated. Here is the monthly chart, lost over 50% of its value, actually fell more than stocks fell during the housing crisis. And yields went from basically zero, or you know, or at least on T-bills, and you know, well under 1% on the 10-year, they went to 5% on the 10-year. And this was a bit of a capitulation move. I, I believe it was a capitulation, at least a near-term capitulation. We were getting all kinds of calls and people were very concerned. And we'll admit we were caught a little bit surprised by how fast this fell. We we hedged the best we could with options and we held on to the position. Now, if we go to the daily chart, you'll see just how much this has moved. The 10-year went from 5% here to you know 3.9 or something here. I haven't looked at it in the last day or two, but below 4%. So it's been a straight up move on the daily chart in this channel. And we've actually uh, let half the position go back a, a few days ago because we had an in-the-money call. And we frankly expect a pullback. We're very bullish on long-term bonds, long-term. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised to see TLT go 20% higher from here at least, 120 to 130 maybe. But I think it's very likely that yields uh, come back towards 4 or 5 or so. And that would be maybe TLT 90 to 92. You know, I believe we're probably going to get a pullback. There's a lot of bulls in this trade now, and it's been a straight up move. So we're still in the position, but half at the moment, likely add back if, if we get a pullback. Um, and so, you know, certainly would take profits if you haven't taken any in this space, um, because it's not going to be, it's not going to be straight up. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> what I hear you saying, guys, is um, probably for the you know foreseeable short term, uh, likelihood is the markets are going to keep going higher. Um, you are worried the higher they go of, of a pullback risk here. Um, in uh, gold specifically, this this could be the inflection point, right? This could be that that long awaited you know multi multi year uh, breakout moment that folks have been looking for. And again, if if in uh, liquidity and, and momentum and everything could continue to bring everything higher from here. This could finally be what gold needed to, to break out. And if it does, that'll ignite the mining sector. So I know you're not saying that's definitely what's going to happen, but I can, I can see it in your eyes that you're, 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 
looking at this, you know, with some degree of eagerness to see if this is the moment. Um, with bonds, love to see it. Uh, love to see it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and with bonds, you expect higher prices as well, but probably after some sort of pullback, given how rapidly they've moved uh, in the in the relatively near future. Agreed. All right. Well, we're going to have to end it there. Um, this has been uh, a longer than normal uh, uh, video with Michael and you guys, and it's the weekend. I want to let people you know get back to their weekend chores uh, if they need to get them done. Uh, real quick, just in wrapping up, folks, um, if you'd like to see Michael come back on this program in early 2024 and give us an update on what he sees uh, with his liquidity outlook at that point in time, uh, please let us know by hitting that like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And just a reminder, while this channel is still new, the growth in our subscribers really does make a difference in getting the YouTube algorithm to pick us up and give us love. So please hit that subscribe button. It's totally free. Speaking of subscribing, if you haven't done so yet, consider subscribing to my new Substack. That's at adamtaggart.substack.com. You get a lot of free information about all the content and, and the goings-on here at, at the new Thoughtful Money channel. And the premium subscribers um, who get in at a very, very low price, it's just like eight bucks a month right now, um, get my Adam's notes, which are my detailed sort of cliff note summary to, to all the interviews that I've done, but, but especially this one with Michael Howe. So to get that, go to Substack. Um, if you are thinking about subscribing to the premium service, do it now because the price is increasing at the end of the year. And if you do it now, you'll get grandfathered in at the, the low price for as long as you remain a subscriber. So want folks to know about that. Um, and then wrapping up, folks, um, if you um, one of the questions I wanted to talk with Michael about that I didn't get a chance to was his outlook on housing and how liquidity you know, might impact the, the housing market. Um, I just recorded. Uh, a very just released a uh, very detailed interview on housing with Lance Lambert. And so if you've got some more stamina left in you after watching this video, I'll put up a link to Lance right here. John and Mike, great week as always. Thanks so much for joining me. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Hey, thank you, Adam. Have a great day and Merry Christmas to everybody. I think it's Christmas Eve as you're watching this. Excellent. Thank you again, Adam. And uh, we look forward to seeing you and your viewers next week.